0: I um, you know, I, this isn't in the Gospel of John, and there's so many that are beautiful. Uh, the one that maybe I like, uh, the healing of the blind man. You know, the, the Pharisees are always really challenged, like, what do they do? This is in John chapter 9, I'll just mention this one really quick. Uh, and, and they want to know, like, who healed this man? Like, who, how did he get healed? Where did he go? What was his name? And no one knows anything. You know, I mean, the, the parents are like, we don't know, ask our kid, he's old enough. Uh, the 38-year-old man, or however old he is, he's like, "Oh, I don't know who he was. I don't know. I don't know where he went." But that, that one line. Here's what I do know: <laughs> whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know: I was blind, but now I see. And then he goes on and says, "Do you want to be his disciples too?" I, I just love that line. Um, and that's, I think, that miracle is, that inspires one of the greatest songs that we have in the Christian faith. Right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. He saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Okay. Yeah, just such great miracles. Um, I, I, I want to show you a video of Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, and and let's, let's see if it is how we envisioned it looking from all those years ago. And then we'll actually read the account of it.
1: more wine.
2: What will thou have me to do that will I do? For my now is not yet come. Whatsoever he saith unto you, see that ye do it. water vessels and fill them. Fill them?
0: Bring up the picture we can. I, like this. I like the picture here I don't I know, know, know if this is what it actually looked like or not but I want to read to you the account of Jesus turning water into wine and then I just want to ask you some questions about like, what what about this miracle seems strange to you because it seems like a different kind of miracle to me I don't know if it's the way that Jesus interacts with his mom or if it's the way that he seems to say my hour is not ready and then he goes on and performs the miracle. I want you to notice that Mary isn't really, even really mentioned by name here. Right. You know, the Gospel of John, you get these... I mean, you don't have the same story of, of Mary and Joseph like you do in Matthew and Luke and the story of the virgin birth and angels and shepherds and wise men and all of that. Like Mary comes onto the scene... And her name isn't even mentioned specifically. She's just a woman that recognizes that she's at a wedding and they've run out of wine. Which my mom also would recognize that, by the way. Uh, And that's the part where she would say, don't embarrass me. But you guys don't know her. Uh But I I wonder, why would she recognize that they're out of wine? Anyway, so this is what the account says in John chapter 2. On the third day. By the way, a lot of beautiful things happened on the third day in the Gospel of John. Did you ever catch that? Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, if you think this is impressive, wait till you get to John chapter 20. <laughs> on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And I don't know if she's, you know, walking around with an empty wine glass in her hand. Or she is just... Maybe she's a host. Maybe she has been invited to be uh, a helper or a servant at this. But she, she's mindful. She notices that something is amiss. And what a cultural shame that would be, right? It would be like, I don't know if it's a, as big of a deal if we ran out of wine at a wedding today or alcohol, but it would be like running out of food, running out of space for people to sit. It would be maybe showing up and having to tell someone you're not invited to the wedding. I mean, I just think how kind of embarrassing that would be. Um, Dear woman, he said, Why do you involve me? And Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Hey, can we just pause for a moment here, even to respond to his mom by saying, Dear woman?
2: Yeah.
0: And, and try, try talking to your mom and using the word woman. Yeah. Next time you're having a conversation with her, see how she responds to that. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you, which is also kind of a strange thing because it, it makes it sound like Jesus doesn't really want to get involved in being a part of this. And yet she just looks right over at the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. Yeah. And I'm not sure if Mary says a single word throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. I have to think about this, but I think that these are her only words and maybe her final words in the Gospel of John, which is not a bad mantra to live by, right? <laughs> do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Now, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. He doesn't even say bring it to the bride and the groom. He says take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where he had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I'm going to argue, I think that these are maybe the most significant words in the entire miracle. It's not even what Jesus says. Jesus really doesn't say anything that seems to be all that significant in this miracle it's the words of this master who is completely unaware that jesus performed the miracle you have saved the best till now and this was the first of his miraculous signs that jesus performed at cana in galilee and he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him all right Uh, anything jump out at you that seems kind of strange to you in this miracle I might have hinted at some of them already. But yeah, you did. Yeah, what, what th- what's the part that jumps out at you as being, that's a little bit strange. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just now noticed this, but the stone water jars were not drinking water, they were ceremonial cleansing water. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Very good. And, clean. and probably not very clean, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're big. I mean, I, you know, in this video, you see that they seem to be, like, you could pick them up, but I actually think that, you know, 20 to 30 gallons uh, would be difficult to manhandle, right? Uh, it, it'd be difficult to hold. Anyone else? Was there anything else that jumped out here has been a little bit strange in Jesus' behavior, his interactions? Anything that he says that go, well, what's that all about?
2: there's quite a few commentators that make comments about Jesus' words to his mother and a lot of them kind of shall I say water down the, <laughs> the interaction as it wasn't impolite or it wasn't at all rude it was just a form of communication of that day and that's that's nice thoughts I don't know yeah. I wasn't there and but I trust that they know what they're talking about
0: yeah you know it may not seem that all that uh, familial, or maybe it was just a very common way of referring to his mom. I, I think sometimes I might affectionately say to my mom, you know, how are you doing this, how you doing this morning, young lady or girl or something like that? Things that it's a term of affection, although I wouldn't use those words to describe anybody, but because it's my mom, I might. Yeah. Uh, there's something that just jumps out at me, like right off the bat about this miracle that seems shocking to me when I compare Jesus to the rest of the other miracles that he performs. And I don't, I don't even think I'm reading too much into it. When I, when I read about the miracle in John chapter 5 of Jesus healing this invalid man, he goes up to him and he wants to heal him. When Jesus walks on the water to save the disciples from drowning, he's going out of his way to heal them. Uh, when he heals Lazarus from the dead, he goes to the town into the tomb and heals Lazarus. He approaches the blind man. This is the only miracle I could think of, or at least initially, he doesn't seem like he wants to have anything to do with it. Yeah. He
3: even I, says, my hour has not come.
0: Yeah. Like,
3: like just hold up. Yeah.
0: yeah. And not only does he not seem like he wants to do it, he almost makes the statement, I'm not going to do it.
2: Yeah.
0: Or maybe there was something in his voice or in his eyes that caused Mary to say, I think he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I, here's the other part that I think is fascinating. Like, this is his first miracle, And he, I think, chooses to remain anonymous. Like, no one really knows that it was Jesus that performed this miracle. Not the bride, not the groom, not the master of the ceremony. Like, no one knows that Jesus performed this miracle. Like If this is your coming out miracle, this is a strange way to come out. In fact, I want you to think about this. If you are going to perform a miracle that establishes that you are ushering in a new kingdom, like, is this the miracle that you choose to perform?
3: Yeah, that's why he said, my time hasn't come, like, to do that type of miracle.
0: Yeah. But I'll, I'll do one now where, like, nobody knows. That's an interesting thought. Good I've one. never thought about that. Maybe it's this way of saying, I don't really want to start my public ministry, but I'm going to for you mm-hmm. yeah. as a result of your request.
3: Yeah. I wonder if one of the important things <clears throat> is that his disciples did actually see him do this. So at the bottom of this mm. section, it says, this was the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Mm-hmm. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Good point. Yeah. This was like the beginning of this ministry, and it probably, if anything, it's like, well, who really needs, other than for their honor, who needs more wine at their wedding? Like this is, It's not like healing a person and bringing them back to life. Yeah, It's to keep them from shame, perhaps. But it seems like it's more like, hey, like, kind of nudge-nudge to the disciples, like, look what I'm going to do, you know? And, like, no one else knows. And then he's like,
0: okay. That's a really interesting point. I don't know if I've even thought about that, that that maybe it wasn't a a coming-out miracle for the public as much as it was a miracle for his disciples. good. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. One of the things I noticed, uh, we never read, except on a couple of occasions, about Christ's brothers and sisters. Hmm. There's nothing said about his relatives at that miracle feast. Canaan is where Christ said after he was resurrected, go and I will meet you Hmm. in Galilee. Hmm. And so he's known in Galilee, Hmm. obviously. The brothers and sisters are not mentioned. But Mary, who Hmm. plays a very insignificant role as far as culture is concerned, is there with her son. Mm-hmm. Have his brothers and sisters never seen him do yeah. anything of the sort. Have they any hint that he has these powers and ability, We don't know. Right. Right? Yeah. But mother seems to have an instinct. All of you mothers out there understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mothers seem to have an instinct that my kid can do this. Yeah. So <clears throat> It's time for you to get started.
0: Uh, that's an interesting thought. I, I never even thought about this idea that maybe Mary is nudging Jesus because she knows something about who Jesus is. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's Mary's nudge that inspires the first miracle in the public ministry of Jesus to be made clear. I, now, I'm not questioning God, and I'm not questioning the Scriptures or God's timing. I hope that you don't think that I am. But, but if I were to start my public ministry and if I was trying to make a statement about who I am, I might almost do it in the reverse order that these gospels portray Jesus performing the miracle. I might start in John chapter 11 where I'd raise someone from the dead. Good I thought. I might then go to John chapter 9 where I heal someone who was born blind, I might then perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, because at that point I'd want thousands of people to know who I am. Or, Or I might even walk on water and save my disciples from drowning, because that theological statement of I have the power over water, the same way God had the power to divide the waters when he saved the Israelites, I might start with that one. Now, I, honestly, like this is a miracle that shocks me. Not just because Jesus doesn't seem to want to do it and then does it. Yeah. It shocks me that this is the very first one, like water to wine. But then I did some reading, and you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, I work at a winery. For those of you that and I preach at the Wilderness Church of Christ, but I work at a winery. And so I've been around grapes and vines and I think about this a lot and I I could see why this would be so significant because there's this passage in the book of Amos that talks about this idea of a new kingdom and it being connected to wine. Uh, Now there are a ton of passages in the Old Testament that speak to this, but let me just read to you this one passage that for the ancient Israelite community, they associated a new kingdom being established with this new wine. I'm gonna find Amos here in a second. And it's not easy to find in my Bible. It seems to always be jumping out of place. Look at Amos chapter nine. One of the last verses in the book of Amos. Starting in verse 11. In my Bible it's entitled Israel's Restoration. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins. And build it as it used to be So they may possess the remnant of Edom And all the nations that bear my name Declares the Lord Who will do these things And the days are coming Declares the Lord When the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman And the planter by the one treading grapes And new wine will drip from the mountains And flow from all the hills And I will bring back my exiled people Israel And they will rebuild the ruined cities And what will they do there? They will live in them and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they will make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the way that the book of Amos ends, this idea that they will be able to inhabit a land, a land that they will call their own, and that they will live there long enough to grow grapes, to plant trees, to enjoy the fruit, food of a shade and so there was something in this uh, Jewish theology that connected the idea of new wine and wine with being the celebration of God restoring Israel and by the way where else would you have drinking wine in the Israel community where you would have several glasses of wine yeah the Passover feast when you pause and you celebrate God's redemption throughout history of the Israel people and and you go through and you read those accounts of Jesus establishing this Passover meal and oftentimes it talks about him sharing a second glass of wine or in ancient Israel you would have had three or four glasses of wine like it would have been multiple glasses and celebration and the night would have lasted for hours and this would have been a part of the way that you celebrate God's redemption throughout ancient Israel's history. Not all that different. You know, we take communion. And in some churches, not in the Church of the Christ I'm familiar with, but in some churches, communion is with wine. Right. It's still connected to this idea of a new kingdom. Right. Now here's the stuff I think about. Um, I think, and if you have your paper, you can take a look at this. I think that those words, save the best for last, are pretty significant. Because I think that, that really essentially points us to the resurrection. But I actually believe that all of these aspects point to the ultimate miracle of the resurrection. So if I haven't said this before, I'll just say it again. There are seven miracles that take place in the Gospel of John. John chapters 1 through 12. And some scholars call that the book of signs. And chapters 13 through 21 deal really with the last week of the life of Jesus. There are seven miraculous <laughs> signs, each, some people would argue, go from uh, lesser to more significance. Uh, There's a building up, there's this climax of the miracle accounts that take place. Uh, You have the water to wine, and then you have the healing of an official son. He's not dead, he's just sick. You have a man who's an invalid, he's not dead, he's just injured. And then you have Jesus calming the sea, like it seems to be building up on one another. And it ends with Lazarus being raised from the dead. Right, but it doesn't really end there. I mean, it ends with Jesus being risen from the grave. Right, like there is some theological significance to the order of these miracles. Um, But the part that I think is interesting is who, who Mary is in this account. Now, just pause for a moment. Mary is not known by her name. Now, maybe everyone that would have read it in the first century would have recognized, yeah, Mary. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But there's a lot of Marys running around in the in the Gospels. She's not mentioned by name. That's radically different than in Luke's account or Matthew's oh, yeah. account where she's mentioned by name, Joseph's mentioned by name. There's a little bit of emphasis upon her life and her role and her birth. I mean, all of that. You don't get her okay. mentioned here. But she plays a significant role in this miracle, doesn't she? And, and by the way, the next time that Jesus refers to her as woman, where does that take place? The crucifixion. The crucifixion. Do you remember what, what's taking place there?
1: He's dying. He's looking to help. Maybe hit John and say, take
0: care of this woman. Yeah. Mother. Woman, behold your son and son. Behold your mom. Right? Like, I, I'm not sure if this is not a little bit of foreshadowing to the words that Jesus will eventually say and refer to, to Mary on the cross. And by the way, that's not the last time that Jesus calls a woman, woman. There's another Mary in the Gospel of John that he asked the question, woman, why are you crying? This is in John chapter 20. Now, I, I think that some of the dialogue between Jesus and his own mom is foreshadowing the resurrection with his own words to Jesus speaking to his mom on the cross and Jesus speaking to Mary Magdalene after he's risen from the grave. Um, by the way, this, this idea of timing, uh, we don't have time to do it, but you know, Jesus says that statement, I, it's not my time. And that idea of time or hour, that is mentioned over and over again in the Gospel of John. Like when his hour has come, he decides to wash the disciples' feet. When the hour has come, Judas betrays him. When the hour has come, he decides, not Pilate, he decides that he will be crucified. And this is the very beginning of the idea of the timing and the hour being introduced in the Gospel of John. All of it points to the resurrection. But I think maybe the part that I like the most is this idea that you have saved the best till now. Uh, Now, normally in the Gospels, I think of Jesus's words being the most significant. But in this miracle account, Jesus's words just seem to be questions and statements. They're a little bit ambiguous. But the servant, the the master of the banquet, I mean, he he makes the ultimate statement. You have saved the best till now. And in my mind, I can't help but to think about all of the different prophets that came leading up to Jesus. And then Jesus isn't a prophet. He is God's son. And in the Gospel of John, he's God. I, I love those words, you have saved the best till now. Because I actually think that that's a little bit of a, of a preview to the rest of the next six miracles leading up to the miracle of Jesus. Ultimately, what is the greatest and the best miracle in the Gospel of John? It's the miracle that takes place at the very end. He saves the best to the last. It's not just a reference to Jesus having come at the very end of all these other prophets. It's a reference to, I think, the resurrection that takes place at the end of all these other miracles. Now, the person that is able to raise himself from the grave is the person who's able to offer resurrection to anyone who comes after him he is the resurrection and he is the life and so that idea that jesus is the best and he comes at the very end i think is seen not just throughout the gospel of john i think it's seen throughout the entire bible yeah this is why i think this miracle is so significant and maybe this is why it, it begins at the very beginning of john's gospel maybe this is why it's the first miracle that jesus performs It's a reference to ancient Israelites' history, but it's also a reference to the entire book of the Bible. And on a side note, I was just thinking about this. I'd have to really follow through on this process, but here's what I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about it out loud. It seems to me that from Genesis chapter 1 or 2, where you have this first marriage that takes place between Adam and Eve, to the end of the book of Revelation, where Jesus and the church, the bride and the groom, it seems to me like the entire Bible, from beginning to end, and then right down in the middle, seems to have this metaphor, this reference to marriage. Yeah. Like, like, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that the first miracle takes place at a wedding. Since, from Genesis to Revelation, that metaphor is used. It's not just in Ephesians 5, right? It's in John chapter 2, which I think is a pretty central, like literally a central part of the Bible in a sense. Okay, well, enough about my theological musings and what this passage can mean. I have a question for you, and maybe you have a question for me. Yeah?
3: Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering what the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man, uh, while holding a good wine for the last. I'm just wondering, is it not the bridegroom that said, and perhaps maybe Christ is the master of the feast?
0: Hmm. I don't know. I, you know, I don't. I don't think of him as being the master of the feast in this situation.
3: Or if you to think about the marriage supper like you say with Amos, yeah, in the return, and so is this not setting the story at the beginning?
0: Yeah, I, it's an interesting thought.
3: Yeah. Also, you were alluding to this in more broad terms, but when I think of the biblical themes of of weddings and marriages. Um, you know, I, I, one of the places my mind goes to is Revelation 19, right? hmm. which is the wedding feast of the Lamb right before the inauguration of the new creation. Yeah. Um, and again, the, the way these themes are woven from, you know, Amos 9 into the Gospel of John into Revelation is just just gorgeous. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, you can see that, you know, clearly led by the Holy Spirit, he writes this, but he's, these, these individuals are writers and they're thinkers and they're theologians and they're weaving a story Ultimately, though, I I ask the question also, like if this is the first miracle that has such significance, how come Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it? How come they're silent about it? That's more of a good question for myself. Okay, so because I'm a minister, not a college professor primarily or solely, ultimately I take a look at these miracles and I say, what do they have to do with you and I? Like I want you to think with me. What is the personal application to this miracle account? Is there one? Like, I I appreciate Jesus' generosity, his kindness. He doesn't want to embarrass anybody, so he performs a miracle. I think this is still the Jesus that I worship today. He cares about the needs of people. He wants to help them save face. He cares about our dignity. I know that's a little bit of a stretch when it comes to application. But I'm, I'm asking this question ultimately because when I stand up and preach on a Sunday morning, if I just talk about this neat miracle and how it's you know, significant to Jesus' ministry, I recognize that there are probably some people in my congregation saying, I'm struggling raising my teenage boys. What does this mean to me? Uh, I'm going through some pretty big questions about whether or not I wanna continue with my job or my grandmother's health. What does this have to do with me? I'm fighting off peer pressure about whether or not I should do drugs at my junior high. What does this miracle have to do with me?
1: And I interject something? Yeah. And I don't mean to drag us off the point. My father was a long-time elder, the suburban church, baptized lots of people. We used to have a large family get together, and we had excellent cooks in the family. Hmm. Some of you have heard this story before. My dad used to always walk around with a fork after all of the meal was done, and he would say, save your forks, because the best is yet come, hmm. which meant the desserts. And so when we buried him, we put a fork in his oh, I suc- like that. pocket. But those words, the best are yet to come. So, if he is saying that the best is being saved for less, those of you who have studied the Bible much more than I have, know that These are not necessarily the order in which these miracles occurred. Hmm. Because each one of those Gospels was written to a different audience. Right. And so, if if you consider the audience to whom it's being written, that miracle might have been so much more important to them, that wedding
0: feast,
1: than another miracle written, say, in Matthew. That's written to primarily Jew. Yeah. No,
0: I think that's a good point.
1: Whatever it might be. And so those writers or editors of these could have arranged them at different places. Yeah. But the wine obviously had great significance. Yeah. And the best was saved for us. Yeah. Yeah. Like the dessert was saved for us.
0: Yeah. 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 So I, I'll just tell you this real quick. My grandmother used to always, and I used to, because I was the youngest of my family, I get stuck next. I was wedged right between my mom and my grandma at all major meals until younger cousins were born, thank the Lord. But my grandmother sometimes would say, Did you save room for dessert? And I would say, Well, of course I did. And then my grandmother would say, Well, we don't have any dessert, so have more gravy and potatoes. She was, she was only kidding, by the way. You know, But like, if I wasn't eating enough, it was her way of saying, you're going to eat some more before you get dismissed from the dinner table. What about this line though? The best is yet to come. Yes. Like, uh, what does that mean to those of us in the church today? What what could that mean to a non-Christian community? What what does that mean to your personal life and to my life? Like, life, where do you find life me? in the
2: kingdom? Yeah. John three will be the kingdom discussion.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Paul is going to take the theme that the kingdom of God is not eating, drinking peace, love, hmm. and so uh, I would I would try to apply it to life in the kingdom. You've lived life one way, or we've tried to live our life one way, and now the best is safe for last, you've discovered Jesus, who yeah. is the wine. the Water, back in that day, um, the wine was probably a little different context than our 14% or 15% wine today, and so it was uh, a very choice quality, object uh, Mm. to have and so i think that significance is that it's christ like you put on your outline as comparison to anything else
0: yeah yeah and and this this is the beginning of this new idea of a newness like there's a new kingdom with this water being turned into wine in john chapter 3 there's a new birth of the water and the spirit in john chapter 4 there's a new it's a new kind of worship you'll worship in spirit and truth also a new community
3: or somebody you know is struggling, right? When they're going through that dry patch, you can say, hang in there. The best yeah. is yet to come. I think of, a, of a Philippians 3.16, where Paul says, you know, there's this, you know, for Christians, you're running this race. You already won it, by the way. You have this crown.
2: You just have to persevere. Yeah. So it's that perseverance of that kingdom life as you're saying.
0: Yeah. Good, good word. I hold on to that. I really believe that in the Christian faith, and... It's got ups and downs, doesn't it? Like, you know, you just go through trials and tribulations, and sometimes there's struggles. But I really do believe that if I hang in there, it will get better. I, I believe that, that better things await me. And maybe not even in this physical life, but I tend to think in this physical life, I think in the kingdom. I think long beyond death, there's something better. There's something greater. And I can't even put my hands on it. I can't even imagine it. I mean, no eye see, no ear heard, but God is prepared. I mean, the best for a non-Christian is yet to come. Once they enter into the new kingdom, or once they find forgiveness and have hope, I mean, the best can still be. Like that, that's my message, in a sense, for a non-Christian. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to over-symbolize any of these things, but I will say the biggest thing that I've taken away from studying this passage recently is those jars... I don't know if they were empty or not. I sense that they were. They filled them up with water. Jesus turns them into wine. And they end up being the best beverage that anyone can have. I really take seriously this idea that when I'm experiencing emptiness, and I experience it on a regular basis, that God can fill me up with his spirit and pour me out and make such an impact in other people's lives that will cause them to say the best is yet to come. Yeah. Like, I am a vessel, right? Uh, there's a whole other theological lesson to be taught about the number of different ways that jars are used in the Gospel of John. Right. The woman at the well, she leaves her jar behind. Um, there's another example of a jar that's, I'm forgetting what it is in the Gospel of John, but it'll hit me later. Yeah?
3: yeah that was, uh, I thought your analogy is pretty good because the ancients considered the wine to be a spiritual sort of a Greek. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, Oh, yeah. You can even call it spirits today if you're drinking a strong drink.
0: Yeah. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he's using a jar, I think. Pours it out and he washes the disciples' feet. Right. Yeah, you know, there's there's just so much here, you know. There's not much more in the Gospel of John about wine. There's something in John 15 about Jesus turning, well, not water into wine, but you're the vine and he's the branches. Right. But you know, you recognize how much water is used in the Gospel of John. Yes. John chapter two, it's water to wine, and John chapter three, that's water but spiritual baptism, and John chapter five, the healing of the invalid man, he's lying near water, and John chapter six, Jesus walks on water. John chapter four, living water. Yeah, John chapter four, it's the living water. Seven. Three, yeah, I mean, like it's it's amazing how much water is used in the Gospel of John. But it's the only time that wine seems to really be. Well, no. Other than maybe the wine mixed with vinegar offered to Jesus on the cross. Well, now I'm just now I'm just rambling and babbling. Thank you for being here. Thank you for Thank uh, you. your time and your attention. I'm gonna I'm sure have a full day today, but this will be one of the highlights of my day. I've never done this on my birthday. Uh, I don't get asked to speak very often uh, at the Pepperine Bible Lectures. I'm so grateful to do it to meet job. some new friends and to be reacquainted with people that I. I see on a pretty regular basis. Thank you for sharing. I, I, I need to say this real quick to you. I was in this class last year, and I heard Dan teach, and I tried to structure my entire lesson today based upon the way that you did it with such an openness, asking questions, hearing feedback. Thank you. So you had an influence on my life from last year. So thank you. Well, let's, let's close with prayer, and then we'll, we'll head on out. Is that be okay? Actually, Dan, do you want to close us in a prayer yes. Would you do that for us, please?
2: God, we've been very touched by a transparent leader of your kingdom and an employee here at Pepperdine, a brother. Um, we feel like we've been a part of something very special today and uh, we feel as though that we are tasting a high quality wine in this class. We have fellowship, we have interaction, we are finding that you are you truly do satisfy our hunger. And while we have ups and downs in life, um, you are a constant. You are our source. You are the beautiful flow. And so I thank you uh, for Greg doing this awesome class today and for each one here. And I pray that you fill this day with joy and gladness for all of us and especially for him as it's a special day as you blessed his mother and now us with his presence among us. Thank you for Jesus in his name.
0: Amen. Amen. Who are you?